Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. And I am really, truly excited about my guest today i am a little bit like um you know a a kid in a sweet shop because there's so much knowledge and so much information that i want to i want to get off our our guest today i'm talking about no other than none other than legendary michael kitsis michael welcome to retirementals thank you abraham appreciate the opportunity to join you today it's really, really great to, to have you on the podcast today. So, and as I said, there is a lot, a lot that I want to, um, I want to talk to you about today from some of the research that you've been doing on the Kitsis survey to, um, you know, what's happening in terms of technology around, mm-hmm. um, you know, financial planning. So there's a lot. And, and our guests are in for um, a treat. But before we dive in, pretend someone, one of our listeners, has been living under the rock for the last, uh, <laughs> for the last, you know, 10, 15 odd years. And who, who he doesn't or she doesn't know who Michael Kitsis is. Tell us, give us a little bit of an introduction. Sure, so I, I, I wear a couple of different hats in the industry. Uh, best place to find me is kitsis.com, K-I-T-C-E-S.com. Uh, that's basically where I nerd out on, on financial planning. Uh, we publish the most widely read blog amongst financial advisors here in the US, uh, do a lot of work in the advisor technology space in particular, publish very popular uh, advisor tech map. We put out a couple of podcasts to advisors on journeys to success and even communicating with clients and how to connect with them better. Uh, beyond that, I'm the head of planning strategy for Buckingham Wealth Partners. We're a, a very large $50 billion independent advisory firm based here in the U.S. as well. I've spent uh, 20 odd years as an advisor in the industry going from a lot of client work to a little bit more broader industry work and then living all the uh, all the span between. Uh, I've also been involved in starting a number of different businesses that serve the advisor community, including uh, XY Planning Network, which provides a, a platform for younger advisors that want to start grow, running growth firms using the monthly subscription fee model. We were the ones that kind of pioneered that as a standalone business model seven years ago. Uh, a financial technology firm called Advice Pay. Uh, that actually handles payment processing as advisors move from assets under management models to what we broadly call now fee-for-service models. Uh, also involved in a recruiting business called New Planner Recruiting, a flowcharts and checklists business for advisors called FP Pathfinder, uh, and, uh, and a few others that we're always working on. So I, I kind of live at this intersection of you know, having lived the advisory business for more than 20 years now, uh, having started a number of businesses that serve advisors, uh, writing and speaking out to the industry, at least before the pandemic, I was uh, the road warrior as well. It was out at 50 to 70 advisor conferences every year. So I got really good perspective on what's going on at the grassroots level with advisors, which is part of where the all the different businesses came from and solving some of the problems I saw in the landscape. Uh, and so I, I just kind of eat, drink, live and breathe the financial advisor world. Do you sleep? <laughs> I do. I get this question a lot, uh, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, I, I do sleep. I've, I've, I've got a Fitbit to track it. In fact, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very much into the quantified self. Uh, I'll admit, I, I don't have a lot of other social life these days. It's a lot of work, sleep, and, and play with my kids. I've got three young ones. And so, uh, I, if, candidly, while I miss being out on the road to talk to the advisor community, be, being stuck at home with no conferences for the past 18 months with, with three young children has actually been lovely to to get a little bit more family time. Yeah, no, when you, when you were reading out all the list of uh, sort of businesses and things that you're involved in, I'm kind of a little bit um, upset that you didn't mention that you're, you're, you're a shareholder in Timeline as well. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah, I was just starting on the US side before we go global, before we go global as well. 
yeah, a lot of the work that we've done over the past five years in particular is, is you working with some financial technology, advisor technology firms. I like calling it advisor tech, not fintech. Like fintech does a lot of other, well, really cool stuff, but you know, uh, blockchain and Bitcoin and I, things that are, aren't quite the advisor hands-on business. Like how do we actually help clients give better advice? So uh, I do, uh, yeah, work with a number of advisor tech companies that are trying to figure out how do we get going in the advisor tech space. And, uh, you know, particularly on the theme of retirement, as I'm sure we're going to dive into further soon. I've, I've done a, a lot of work in, and published a lot of research around retirement in particular and how we figure out sustainable spending rates in retirement. And so, you know, the, the joyous uh, connections of the Internet. We got connected several years ago around how do we take all this research and actually put it into the hands of advisors so that they can use it. And, uh, uh, and a little while later, all of a sudden, uh, uh, we're, we're working together on some timeline stuff. Yeah, and I, I can't, um, you know, I can't, you know, really thank you enough. And um, I, I think back to, you know, the impact that you, you made in, in my life, in, you know, especially in the early days, right? I remember asking you to come down to the UK. This was... 2015, this was seven yeah. years ago, uh, maybe oh. 14, I can't remember, the, the Science of Retirement Conference, remember Absolutely. that? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we dragged you all the way from, you know, from, from the US, from Washington down to, to, to the UK. And recently, one of the things that just about your, your impact in the industry was a recent, um, someone was, um, a young chap was, uh, you know, appointed as now the, I think, I, I forget what the title is, the chairman of the board of financial planning here, um, here in the UK. So we have the CISI, we used to have something called the Institute of Financial Planning became, um, you know, um, the financial planning board within, yep. within a different organization. And he said to me, he was not actually, he was saying on Twitter that the inspiration for him to Amir is his name, to sort of focus on financial planning and ultimately now the chair of the professional um, yeah. organization here in the UK was that encounter that he had with you, um, you know, seven years oh, ago. Oh, it's so know, warm. At that so warm is my heart to hear it. I was, I was thrilled to see it when Amir had tweeted out that, that he, was, he was taking on the, the, the chair role. It was... I would certainly say instrumental for building my career as well. You know, on, on the, on the U S side, we've got a few organizations as well. Financial planning association is, is our, uh, is our large one here. And, and very similarly, I was, I was involved at the chapter level. I was the chair of the local chapter, uh, was involved in a lot of national committees, chair two of the national conferences. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, an amazing thing, not just for giving back to your profession, but you know what what you get and the connections that you build and the opportunities that get created when you get involved with your professional associations. You know, we 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 are an industry of professionals. I, I don't know that we're fully recognized that way in all countries around the world for the work that we do, but certainly I think the the business of giving financial advice as a profession is a bona fide profession, even if we're not fully there and recognized as such in some places around the world. Uh, but I, part of being a professional is, is giving back to your profession. And part of being successful as a professional is the connections that you make with other professionals. And you, you do that by gathering where professionals gather, which are our professional associations, you know, FPA and NAPFA and the like here and CSISI and your organizations there. And you're actually you you you're in London in a couple of weeks' time. Are you are you dead? Are you coming or in Birmingham to speak at uh, the conference? I will. I will unfortunately be out virtually. I cannot travel right. <laughs> uh, uh, in person out to London, but we'll be we'll be supporting the upcoming conference there as well. Excited. We'll do it as we'll do it as engagingly as we can in the virtual format, but hopefully making a trip back there at some point in the next few years is as travel reopens a little bit more. Uh, absolutely enjoyed my time there as well. Lond London is an amazing city unto itself. Absolutely amazing. We should, we should make that happen. Okay, now let's get, <laughs> let's dive into, uh, you know, the, the, some of the stuff that I want to talk to you about. So the, where I really want to start is, um, you've been doing this, um, you know, Kitsy survey on, on financial planning. So, and you've just recently yep. 
done one. So um, I'm really keen on um, you diving into the detail of the key findings of that. So, you know, give us a little bit of a background to the survey and, and the key findings. Sure. So, so the survey overall, I, uh, just let me even give a little bit broader context. You know, there, there's a lot of industry research out there. I know you've got your share on, on your side of the pond. We've certainly got it here as well. And a lot of that research is what I would call very top-down research, meaning uh, someone starts with like the overall regulatory data. You know, it's pretty easy to track where advisors are in most countries because we're, we're licensed and registered. So you can track how many there are and the trends and what firms they're at and where they're affiliated and where they're going and how they're compensated. And, and all that is very what I call top-down data. And to me, part of what that misses just having lived, lived, you know, sitting in the chair across some clients is there's a lot of stuff that happens in the reality of how we actually communicate and interact with clients in ways that I just don't think are well understood by the top down research. And so we had set out a couple of years ago to say, I want to start doing what I call uh, bottom up research. So I really want to drill down to the individual advisor and what the individual advisor human being is doing in building their businesses, one advisor at a time. And then let's start bubbling that up to understand what it looks like across the entire industry. Now, Grant, we, we did start in the U.S., so I'll, I'll, you know, asterisk to everything we'll talk about. This is at least the, the, the window into the life of the financial advisor here in the U.S. But... We really wanted to focus that way, and so we did. Uh, you know, we did a very long and thorough analysis, almost a thousand advisors, of a super deep questionnaire of what it is exactly they do in every step all the way through their practice. It, it took almost an hour to get through the survey. Bless the souls of all of the wonderful <laughs> advisors who were willing to go through with us in that level of detail. But we just really wanted to understand the just the details and minutia. How does planning really? work like we all say we give this financial advice thing but how does it really work and what are the best practices when you drill down to what people are actually really doing at the end of the day so we found a lot of interesting stuff no great surprise about what the business of advice really looks like um one of the pieces that stuck out the most i think is perhaps a good place to start is is just the time of advisors themselves uh, you know, what we found at the core is that, uh, so in the aggregate in the U.S., about 70% of an advisor's time is spent on, I'll just call it like things for clients and prospects. And about 30% is purely back office, you know, administrative, managing my team, my own professional development, uh, you know, the, the investment stuff of just kind of managing models or portfolios or whatever it is. 70% of it is, is client, client and prospect facing, which in general is, I think probably what we would what we would hope to see, right? Like the majority of the time is serving the people we're here to serve. But when we drilled down to that further, there were actually a lot of interesting surprises about what that time really looks like. Of that roughly 70% pie that's spent on clients and prospects, we found the average advisor really only spends about 20% of that time in the aggregate actually meeting with people who pay them for advice. That was it, 20, 20% of our time. Uh, you know, working a 40 to 50 odd hour a week, we're talking about something in the neighborhood of eight to 10 hours a week. That, that's all we really end out on average being in the chair. Then about another 15% of the time is spent prospecting and trying to get new clients. So in total, that's about 35% or almost half of the 70%. And the other big thing that we found, which uh, perhaps apropos to the, the, uh, you know, the discussion of uh, uh, TAMPs and platforms and, and the evolution of our space, what we found is you know, about half that pie is clients and prospects sitting across from them. And the other half of that pie is preparation for the meeting and follow-up from the meeting. Like we, we literally spend on average an hour of prep and follow-up for every hour that we meet with the client or prospect. Now, on the one hand, that's why we have a somewhat limited number of meetings on average. Uh, but it's hugely time consuming in and of itself. And, and I think speaks a lot to the challenges and pain points around everything from regulation, right? A lot of that is documentation as required by regulators. Uh, a lot of that is just what it takes to keep track of all these different human beings because you can't remember all the stuff in your head if you're gonna meet with them again in two or three or six or 12 months and you wanna 
Remember what you talked about last time. And part of it is just what it takes to engage a client well and run a good meeting, which is you have to spend at least a little time mentally preparing for what are we going to talk about? Where are we hoping to take this conversation? What do we want to achieve just as the advisor out of this meeting? Am I, am I trying to drive a recommendation home? Am I trying to get them to follow through something? Am I just trying to check in with them? Just that takes a little bit of mental space. And so in the aggregate, uh, you know, no great surprise that this is a, a time-consuming business all around. But the, I think the big surprise for a lot of folks that was looking at our, our research was in the aggregate, the relatively limited amount of time that we actually really send out spending in front of clients, like truly getting down to the client interaction time and how much time we spend preparing for those meetings with just the pure administrivia that goes with that. A little bit of that is giving mental, mental thought to what I'm going to talk about, but a lot of that is creating meeting agendas and checking notes from prior meeting and prepping whatever materials are going to be prepared to the clients and doing that analysis that they wanted to see before I walk into the meeting and then capturing all the stuff that we did afterwards into my CRM system or wherever my note-taking system is of choice. It takes a lot of time just to handle the documentation of being a financial advisor. And, and it, it, it chews up a lot of the time that we don't really end up actually getting to spend with clients. So I guess the question, and, and when I was reading this, is the question for me is that, is that just the nature of the beast and we should accept that to be the, the nature of the business? Or, um, or is it just that our technology, right, is ineffective? Because one of the other things I saw from the research, I may be interpreting this wrong, so correct me, is that, you did say something like, well, actually, the, the financial planning technology itself doesn't um, seem to improve or make a difference to how long it takes to prepare the plan. And if anything, what makes a difference is the level of experience or qualification of, of the planner. So... Is it just the nature of the beast or does it point to the ineffectiveness of, of our technologies now? So, so it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, so I'll answer this in two ways because there, there's sort of two ways that we can come at this. The first is we actually segmented out advisors who have been particularly successful in their growth and, and the financial strength of their business versus the rest. And said, like, is there anything different about the best practices of how those advisors spend their time versus the rest? And the answer is there was. And the difference in almost entirely was where they spend their time. Best brought, the best advisors spent less time on back and middle office tasks and more time in client facing. Just it was like a direct time shift. Just they removed time from the back office and they added time to the front office with clients. And it was the most direct change and shift that we saw between the advisors who struggle and the advisors who were successful. But the difference was 10% of their time. So the top advisors actually spent 25 to 30% of their time facing clients and the rest only spent 15 to 20%. And that kind of gap from about, I think the average overall was 17% for, for the, the average advisor versus 20%, 27% for the top advisor. It was a 10% difference. So if I get really practical, like average advisors working 40 something hours a week, 10% swing in their time is four hours a week. We're talking about less than an hour a day. But an hour a day on client time is basically another meeting another meeting four times a week is four more meetings a week across 50 weeks a year is 200 client meetings a year. And like, yeah, the advisor who has 200 additional client meetings every year ends out much more engaged with their clients, better clients, stronger relationships, deeper with them, ability to command more fees, all the things that ultimately drive the superior business outcomes. But you know, it, 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 was, a, it was a game of an incremental shift to the margin. It's not as though the top advisors spend 87% of their time in front of clients and just do like one meeting after another all day long stacked solid. It was an hour a day difference 
was all it took to distinguish the top advisors from the rest. It was one meeting a day that they pulled off a of back office time and put into front office client facing time and then done writ large across the entire year. It adds up a lot very quickly. Uh, and and just candidly to me, like, uh, it, it rings true just from the advisor experience. You know, the, the top advisors who were doing this at the end of the day, if you're spending, uh, uh, if you're spending about 25 to 30% of your time client facing, and you're working the sort of proverbial 40 to 50 hour week, we found the average advisor came out to 44 hours a week. Uh, it, it comes out to about 12 hours a week of client facing time, which, you know, granted some meetings go longer, but I sort of think of that in 12 client meetings a week, maybe eight to 12 client meetings a week, because some of them might be a little bit longer, which comes down to two-ish client meetings a day on average. And yeah, if like if you're having deep, like if you're really getting deep in advice with clients and having deep meetings, it's hard to do more than two or three meetings a day. If you get four client meetings stacked in a day, that is a draining day yeah. for pretty much anyone. Like I, I can do that, but I can't do that every day all year long. So the idea of, well, hey, what would happen if we could have deep financial client meetings with four clients at a time every day all year long? becomes exhausting. That would just, just air quotes, get us to 50% time that client facing, Never mind some that I know out there have sort of imagined this like, well, if we could just make the technology that makes auto, all that automatically support every advisor with everything they need. So you could just sit there in front of client meetings all day long. Couldn't we get advisors up to like six, seven, eight hours a day, just meeting with clients and everything <laughs> else has vanished off the screen. I do. I just, it doesn't work. Like, look, it, it does, it does if your clients are customers and you mostly just implement a product, implement a thing. That's a little bit of a more straightforward transaction. But if you're really getting into the business of advice and just the deeper conversations that go with it and all the things we've got to do to get clients to actually change their behavior and do something different and realize whatever the blocking point is, that's usually a mindset thing that's preventing them from doing the thing that they know they're supposed to do. Cause this is the seventh time in five years you've given this recommendation. <laughs> they still haven't done it yet. So let's talk about what's really going on. Just it, it's weighty work. It's, it's, you know, it, it's psychologically fulfilling work, but it's also can be emotionally draining work. And you just can't do that four or five, six clients a day, every day ad infinitum, I can do some lightweight customer interactions. Client work only goes so deep. And so I think that's part of the driver of what we saw in, yes, the top advisors spend more time with their clients than the rest. We absolutely can see a crystal clear on the data and it just sort of rings true logically, intuitively. But it's not as though they're doing six meetings a day all week long and somehow cram in like 30 client meetings. It's just the difference between the really good ones are doing 10 to 12 meetings a week and the rest are doing four to six meetings a week. I mean, I, I get, yes, I, I, I get, I get that. My, again, depends on how you look at this. If the average advisor spending say, um, you know, 12 hours a week on client meetings and the best advisors are spending, um, you know, 50% more, right? You know, they spend extra six hours, five, six hours. That's 50% more time that they're spending with client. My question is, why are those sort of, call them elite advisors, most successful advisors, why are they able to spend that? Is Good it question. just a question of how they've, they've designed their day and structured their so, team? Yeah. Uh, so yes, and, and this is kind of the, the interesting part in getting the second, second aspect of your question is what we found in practice is that almost all of it was a function of their team and not their technology. Interesting. Uh, it was team support. It was administrative support just to get, get the scheduling and some of the tasks and note-taking off their plate. It was uh, a payer planner support to get some of that plan preparation and analyses and meeting preparation off of their off of their plate. It was having an associate advisor in the room with them so that all of the post-meeting follow-up, they didn't, they didn't need to write the notes. Like the associate wrote the notes. Maybe they briefly reviewed the notes, but I don't have to spend 20 minutes typing up notes. I can spend two minutes reviewing my associates write-up of the of the notes. Uh, it was it was staff structure, it was team structure. 
Because what we found when we drilled down to the technology, obviously like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of technology. I'm a tech nerd myself, right? I'm, I'm like, I, I got to wear a watch and a Fitbit because I still need to watch some old school, but I have to have the technology. So I got one on each wrist. Like I'm, I'm all in on the technology world. So please understand, like I'm, I'm not anti-tech. I founded a tech company. Uh, but what we found in practice is just the fundamental distinction is what happens when advisors get good technology is that they don't do things faster. We do them deeper. Wow. Mm. Not faster planning, deeper planning. And one of the biggest pieces of this that we found that, that really, really made it hit home to me was in the past five years here in the U.S., we've really seen the growth of, uh, we call it account aggregation here. I don't know if it's the same label there. Like yes. all the, the backend connections where clients can connect their accounts that the data feeds in automatically so that you've got continuous flowing data and you don't necessarily have to um, uh, get it out of them directly or get the updates out of them, right? So it's a, it's a wonderful data gathering efficiency. And it's been lauded for years here in the U.S. as oh my gosh, this can make advisors so much faster. It, it, data gathering is so time consuming with clients, for, at least for some of them, where they, mm. they're not well organized. So it really takes a lot to get all the data out of them. The idea was like, this can be amazing. It's going to expedite data gathering. We're going to go so much faster. And so we actually analyzed that. It was one of the things we did in our bottom-up research. Like, let's look at advisors who have actually adopted account aggregation and see how long it takes them to do financial plans compared to the ones that don't use account aggregation. Like, all right, let's see the time savings. And so we did the analysis and we ran the numbers and the advisors who use account aggregation on average spend 20 to 30% more time on the plan <laughs> than the ones who don't. Because when you get richer data, you have richer client conversations. Truth at the end of the day is if the client's not all terribly well organized, like I can only do so much planning because I've only got so much data in the first place. When I get more data, I can do more analysis. I can do more work. I can craft more recommendations. That's going to take more conversations. And the time to do the planning work went up as the data flowed better. We didn't do faster planning. We did deeper planning. And just when you kind of think about the steps of the planning process overall, like we tend to look a lot, I just find the advisor world, like when we talk and look at planning, we talk about saving time on plans. A lot of that is like, why well, uh, you just, it's so much time to like analyze and put the numbers in the software and crunch the output and prepare the deliverable for the clients. And like that's where I think where a lot of us, that, that's what we think of as like the plan process. And there is some, minutia and administrative stuff that would be nice to go faster but when you think overall and like planning is a process with the client right conversations about data gathering and goals and possibilities and what they want to pursue and then i got to present this plan then we got to implement the plan then we're going to engage in monitoring and ongoing conversations thereafter the actual portion of the planning process that is make the plan like capital t capital p and put stuff in the software and get the output is actually a very small percentage of the total time of just the whole scope of the relationship. Most of it at the end of the day is the client meetings and the client conversations. Mm. We're just getting this out of them, getting past the data and into the like, okay, but what really are your goals? Like, I know you said you want to retire when you're 62 years old with this much money, but like, why that much money and why 62? Let's have a conversation about that. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Are you going to be born in retirement? Do you want to do something else? If I could show you how to retire earlier, would that be good? Oh, that's actually bad because you don't know what you do. Cool. Let's talk about what that might look like. Second careers, second businesses, like down the rabbit hole we go. There's so much that we can talk about with, with clients and the more data we've got, the more that powers it. And so, yes, yeah, sometimes there's a very tiny time savings in the actual plan construction process because we just don't have to key as much data when it feeds in automatically. But planning went deeper and it took longer in Incredible. what I view as a positive way, but it, it went longer. And, and, and really, I think the key thing to understand when we talk about how technology supports advisory firms is that, you know, outside of just the client facing part it's, itself when you sort of get to the you know the behind the scenes stuff where technology can create efficiencies we tend to talk about it historically is sort of that there's there's the advisor stuff and there's all the back office behind the scenes stuff 
And one of the distinctions that we actually make, at least here in the U.S., for those of us that that do practice management consulting with advisors, is that you really have to break the back the back end of it into two pieces. So we'll call it the the middle office and the true back office. So the the true back office, as I'm defining it here, is the real administrative stuff, operations, systems, tracking data, you know, uh, uh, account openings, account transfers, yeah. filing applications, like just the, the true sort of paperworky operation-y stuff. The middle office tends to be where a lot of the knowledge work happens. Preparing and analyzing a financial plan analyzing a client's portfolio, crafting the recommendations. The, usually this is the stuff where it really gets more of our intellectual capital that we're actually then selling in the sort of the client-facing transaction. So when you get to the back office, the true back office, text just straight up efficiency. Just everything we can automate and systematize just saves time less time per client in practice that usually just gets experience is scaling our firms a little bit more efficiently it means i don't have to hire as much back office staff support you know 20 years ago when i got started you basically needed an administrative assistant uh for every single advisor to have handled the 50 or 100 clients that they were working with actively uh now we see a lot of advisory firms staff 200 to 250 clients for every administrative assistant every admin supports two instead of one because we automated a lot of stuff. There's just literally isn't as much paperwork and back office things as there was before. So pure back office, straight up efficiency. That's mostly uh, 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 business system and process automation. Tends to tie to our CRMs and our investment platforms and such. Middle office, technology doesn't tend to get expressed as time savings. It tends to get expressed as quality enhancements, right? That's where I don't use the account egg to go faster, I use the account aggregation to go deeper. Now, if the account aggregation powers, populates the data on like an application for an investment account, pure time savings, that's a back office function. But when I use the data to power the financial plan, I get more data, richer data, better data that lets me do a deeper analysis, craft more recommendations for clients, which we then got to talk about. And lo and behold, the technology makes the time higher. Uh, there's also a whole other set of technology and, and very much in the vein of, of where Timeline had started that just shows up in the front office, in the meeting with the client, so we can have better, better conversations, right? You know, I've explained to you how this retirement drawdown stuff goes, but let, let me show you, let me put it up on the screen. Let's talk about it. Let me show you how drawdowns work and what happens when financial crises hit. Wonderful conversation, hugely enlightening for clients, can create those, you know, aha moments where the light bulb goes off their head and they, and they see something differently. But that conversation takes time. And right. again, like what happens when we get better technology for better conversations? We spend more time talking in conversation with clients. So it's wonderful. It's value creating. It, it's, it can be life-changing for them. But faster is not what comes out. <laughs> and, and so just I think there's this fundamental distinction around technology that is not well understood in our business that, yes, the pure back office stuff, tech just flat out makes it faster, faster, easier, more efficient, cost savings, staff savings, all that stuff that, that, that's great as a business owner. But most of the advice tech that we talk about, it doesn't make us faster. I mean, just literally empirically, what we're seeing is the people who adopt that tech the most don't go faster. They go slower, but they go deeper. They create more value for clients. They literally charge more. Like, Higher revenue per right. client, higher revenue overall. I mean, just lots of good business metrics. So it's not even that the tech doesn't have wonderful business economic outcomes, but this idea that I still see a lot of large enterprises in particular have, like if we could just cram more technology in front of the advisors, we could basically turn them into human interface automatons that just talk, talk, talk to clients all day long, seven, eight client meetings a day, 80% of their time on clients, we'll make them super efficient. There'll be 20 minute meetings. We'll just rotate through a bajillion clients. Like. <laughs> First of all, like it's dehumanizing to the clients. Frankly, as an advisor, that sounds like an awful, awful yes. job. Yeah. Where I don't know, I don't know my clients. I can't keep track of who's who, and I lose all the personal connection. And it's not really representative of the value because, it, frankly, if we can re, if we can make technology that good for the client interaction, let's just get us out of that conversation. Like that can be direct to consumer 
software for anybody who wants to use the software directly and doesn't need to talk to a human. Like more power to them. There's a bunch of folks that'll just do it themselves. But by the time you show up in front of an advisor, the conversations usually are actually a key part of the thing. Like there's something that they're not doing on their own that they need another human being to help with. And the technology doesn't automate that away. It enhances that conversation. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that needs attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business and their cost bases have been rising because of regulation and the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial. Um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. There's a trend I've noticed in the last couple of years where, you know, the financial planning technology um, in the US um, and increasingly in the UK are essentially now most of the, the financial planning software are owned by TAMPS. You know, you have eMoney was acquired by Fidelity a couple of years ago. Money Guide Profolo was acquired by yep. Investnet, Advisor by Orion, and Voyant, which, Voyant. Is, a, which is very popular in the UK, but, you know, yep. is now being acquired by TAMP in the US. Is there, what's happening here? What's going on? So, at the most basic level, I think what you're, what you're seeing is this broad shift of the whole industry from our, our roots in selling investment products and implementing investment portfolios into saying, you can kind of do a lot of that now with technology, right? Online brokerage platforms, even before Robos, like you could still just buy all the funds on an online brokerage account. This, this sort of collective realization that Clients don't really need us to get the investments the way they did in the past, where in a lot of countries, like you literally, you literally couldn't buy an investment without calling right. a broker to sell it to you. That wasn't that long ago, but they literally don't need us to get it now. We may be able to help them make it better, right? Make a better portfolio than they could have gotten on their own. But now you're immediately down the road of, well, let me show you how my investment performance is better than what you would have done on your own, right? So now suddenly we're thrust in the investment performance game that we maybe didn't necessarily want to live. That it's going to get increasingly difficult because more and more technology is moving from just accessing the portfolio investments to pre-built models, pre-constructed uh, uh, options. We get them as advisors, consumers get them directly, which just means you get stuck even further into the show me exactly why your model's better than the model I was going right. to get off of this online brokerage firm. And now we're even thrust further into the investment performance game. When you just get to the like, how do I, how do I get off this unpleasant roller coaster? How do I get off this ride? Well, the answer at the end of the day is pretty straightforward. You get broader, more comprehensive advice that goes beyond the portfolio, right? So we see the growth of financial planning globally. 
I mean, uh, we see it in the U.S., you see it there in the U.K., we see it pretty much any country that has a developed financial advisor marketplace. Financial planning is on the rise. And it's just the simple outcome of as the technology ever, you know, inches forward and ever so slightly keeps chopping off whatever the, the, the bottom step of that ladder is, the most common denominator thing that everybody wants and needs and can get, everybody's got to take one or two steps further up that ladder to keep ahead of just the slow, steady encroachment of technology. And it just, I think in a positive way, it's forcing us all up the value chain in a deeper, more comprehensive advice and financial planning. And all of a sudden, all eyes turn to the financial planning software. And so on the one hand, just you see the growth of financial planning software, new tools and technology, they're coming forward, uh, increasingly specialized tools. We see that proliferating here in the US. We publish a a very popular map of all the advisor technology in the US and you can see where the new entrants are coming and just specialized planning tools is a very hot category right now. So we see that growth coming, but at the same time, you have a lot of firms that are, I'll dare say, just kind of still, still attached to the, the, the prior model, that, that investment-centric model, who are saying, well, what is our future? Because they are relevant, right? Just Clients have dollars, it needs to land somewhere. So the investment business never goes away in any of this. The money has to land somewhere and it's still pretty valuable to be in the money business and, and someone's got to solve for that. So uh, you know, don't mistake, like I'm not negative at all on the need to be involved in implementing clients' portfolio. But it can't be the only value proposition because there's too many ways that technology is going to automate that. And if you get stuck in that realm, you get stuck in a world where the only way you can differentiate is better performance of the thing you're implementing. And most of us don't want to play that game unless you're really good at it. And then do, more power do to you. Do you think we, do you get, so, so we're in a world where, you know, model portfolios, you've seen this in the US, there's like, there's all this model portfolio marketplace, right? Model yep. portfolio, everybody's got it, right? And why is your portfolio better than mine exactly? Uh, I don't know. Then, um, at least the smart one, the quick ones are built in financial planning technology on top of that. So, you know, like you said, we can say, actually, well, mine is better because you get a plan that speaks to you, that speaks to your goals, that speaks to your aspiration. And mm -hmm. then you have an advisor say, we're going to hold your hand throughout this journey. Yep. Do you see a well, world where the planning bit also get commoditized or at least bundled into the investment process where you say well you know i'm paying one percent fee to my advisor and of that one percent um you know actually 40 basis points is for the investment and the planning and 60 basis points is the is the coaching which again yeah. you're coaching and building all that stuff we, we've seen that largely happen here in the U.S. already, right. where the planning has become bundled in with the investment offering. So uh, advisory firms that offer, you know, uh, manage client portfolios, live on our assets under management, funds under management model. If you're in the independent advisor marketplace, I, I can virtually guarantee, like, your business card doesn't say portfolio manager. It says financial advisor or wealth manager. And you're offering something broader and more comprehensive. You're offering more holistic advice on top of that. Now, I will asterisk that very, very wide ranging quality. Some people say they're much more holistic and it's not actually really much more holistic than like, what's this money for retirement? Oh, cool. We're a goal-based planning firm that invests for your retirement. Great. What do you do differently? Oh, it's the exact same thing we were already doing. We're just going to say it's for your retirement goal. But like they manage long-term money. They still manage long-term money. Retirement's long-term goal. So there's been a little bit of, we say we do planning and advice, but really at the end of the day, it's to determine that you want to retire and then we manage your retirement portfolio, which is a long-term goal and the same long-term portfolios we already have. So a little bit of that going on, but by and large, what you're already seeing is all the firms that are doing this investment management work are adding financial planning on top. And we see this across the spectrum. So the independent firms that manage portfolios are hiring up CFPs and offering more comprehensive planning. They're going from investment firms to wealth managers and these sort of broader, more holistic labels. You even see the asset managers doing this. So Vanguard launched their absolutely enormous advisor solutions division here in the US. It has grown to literally hundreds of billions of dollars under management in barely five years. They've hired, I think now, nearly a thousand CFPs. 
they sometimes get termed externally as like Vanguard built a robo because they price this at, at a low 30 basis point style. And, and you work with all the advisors virtually. They don't staff locally. But you get a human CFP assigned to you that you work with. Like it is not a robo. And if you think of Vanguard as building a robo, you're going to be hit by a freight train when you discover how human it is. <laughs> uh, they're building an entire scaled human advice business. It just turns out when you do it with like trillions of dollars of scale, you can actually make it relatively inexpensive because there's a lot of economies of scale and they still get clients into the, the uh, Vanguard investment solutions as well. So you get to participate in the advice layer and the, and the product layer. Schwab here is a direct-to-consumer online brokerage platform that's hiring up CFPs and building out advice. Fidelity is a direct-to-consumer online brokerage platform that's hiring up CFPs and building out advice. So everybody who's in the investment business, the individual advisors, the asset managers, and the platforms are all moving in the direction of saying, we need to offer more advice on top of the pure investment stuff alone. Notably, they're massively hiring human beings in order to do it. Fidelity, you know, as, as immense as they are, they, Fidelity spends, I think, more than a billion dollars a year on technology. They are not lightweight when it comes to their technology spend, but they're reportedly hiring 9,000 people right now, human beings, to keep up with all of the growth and investor demand for financial services and device services. And I think a lot of that's happening in the UK. I spoke to the Vanguard's, you know, European sort of CEO a couple of weeks ago, and they're coming into this space. I guess the question I will ask for you is that, you know, for, for the small independent financial advisor who, let's say, you know, three, four, five planners within a business supported by some staff, they don't have, uh, you know, they build portfolios, but it's kind of outsourced or, or yep. using the third party model. What do they need to change? Is it just a case of keep doing what you're doing, keep focusing on your clients? Um, all these people, Vanguard coming into your space are not really threats for you. Just keep focusing on what you're doing. Or have they got to change anything? So I, I, I do think they have to change. I do think the firms coming in are threats, but, but not in the way that we often talk about it. You know, the, the threat that tends to get characterized is, is frankly, is, is how technology itself gets disrupted, right? In technology, disruption is, is sort of uh, like a, a fast and, and brutal and, and quick, right? Like uh, WhatsApp came out of the clear blue sky, and in about three years, instant messaging dropped by 50% globally right. on, on SMS carriers because WhatsApp just obliterated their marketplace mm. in, in, in short order, right? Like Kodak made cameras and had a hundred year history, and then digital <laughs> cameras appeared, and within I 10 hope. years, they were gone and obliterated, right? There's sort of this vision of when new technology comes along, whole businesses can just get obliterated in a flash. That's not what happens in the advice business. And, and not to be complacent or lackadaisical at all, but just there's, there's two fundamental things that make that not happen. Number one, we are a super highly regulated industry. You know, a lot of frustrations around that that most of us live, but it is important. Like just, we touch money, we handle people's life savings. You can't screw around with that stuff. So I view it as a necessary regulation. I don't love every single regulation compliance rule that applies, but I get why it's there. And I'd rather live in that world than an unregulated one where fraud happens and theft happens and no one trusts any financial advisor because of that stuff. But we live in a super highly regulated world, which means you just can't roll through fast with the, with the steamroller because the regulator is going to slow you down. It's, it's part of what regulation does. It's actually an intentional part of regulation sometimes because fast changes is how people get like huge money stolen before you realize what you need to do as a regulator to stop it. You slow that stuff down. So A, the, like the change can only happen so quickly simply because it's a highly regulated industry. But the second and more significant is when we do real advice for clients, we form real relationships and people don't sever relationships like that. You know, the, the, when you look broadly at the advice business, the average advisory firm, at least here in the US, has a 95% client retention rate. Mm. Great firms get up to 97 to 98%, which means you're almost down to the point where the only reason you lose clients is because they literally die. Mortality can be one or 2% if you work with older clients. And, and even relatively bad firms, air quotes bad firms, have 88 to 92% retention rates. And so 
when a bad firm turns their clients over every 10 years, 90% retention, 10% turnover rate is 10 years on average tenure for clients. So when a bad firm turns clients over in 10, in 10 years, an average firm turns clients over in 20 years, and a good firm turns clients over in 30 years, you can't be disrupted that quickly. They don't go anywhere. They just don't go. Sometimes that's frustrating. It's a good advisor because you see clients stay with bad advisors due to inertia, but they just don't move that fast. So you can't have this wholesale disruptive shift where everybody moves quickly because clients just don't move that fast. So what's going to happen in practice for the advisory firms even that start feeling this pressure, it's not as though the disruption is going to happen and you're going to see your client base go to zero as someone steals them all away. What's going to happen is simply that your, your growth's going to go to zero. Right, right. You won't get the incremental. Your, yours aren't going anywhere. But you're going, to see, you're going to see it harder and harder to get the incremental new client because if all you're doing, and I'm putting that in air quotes, like if all you're doing comprehensive personalized financial advice based on your credentials and your years of experience going very deeply for clients and offering that holistic advice to them. Wonderful value proposition for the past 20 years. You're going to be in serious trouble because the others are going to say they do that as well. They may or may not do it better, but the client's going to see their marketing and not yours because they got bajillion dollar marketing budgets. They've got scale, so they're probably going to do it slightly cheaper than you simply because of the benefits of economies of scale. And when they're cheaper with better marketing, and clients can't, at the end of the day, really tell how to tell quality differences between us as advisors because you can only tell after the fact and then it's too late. It gets really, really hard to grow as a generalist against large scaled firms with bigger budgets and better economies of scale. And I'm, I'm, I'm hugely, hugely bullish on the advice business, but I'm really bearish on, on the individual advisor who's a generalist. The large firms will be the generalists. The individual advisor has to be the specialist. That's how you stay differentiated. That's how you stay ahead. That's how you compete effectively in this environment. The deeper specialization, it lets you command higher fees because you offer more specialized services that solve bigger, higher stakes problems. It lets you differentiate because you've got a depth of expertise the big firm doesn't have. You can go to a client and say, sure, they're less expensive, and you'll get exactly what you pay for. Not because of this ephemeral thing, I'm quality and more better servicer and more comprehensiver than everybody else, which clients can't really evaluate because you get down to, look, our firm specializes in optometrists who are within five years of selling their medical practice to a private equity firm. And we know everything there is to know about how to optimize the value of a particular optometry practice and what a PE roll-up firm cares about so you can maximize the value of that multi-million dollar transaction within three to five years of when you're retiring. How's your Vanguard guy at that? Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's Vanguard down the road. <laughs> and, and I'm saying that because that's a true story of an advisor that lives here in the U.S. He lives in the Midwest, which is actually not terribly dense from local market population. So he didn't have the best local market opportunities. And so he's a leading expert at the country at optometrists who are selling their medical practice within three to five years to a private equity roll-up firm, which sounds insanely sort of narrow and specialized, except he has, I think, now more than $100 million under management, a waiting list of clients. Because most of us, at the end of the day, can have a wonderful business with 50 great clients if they're really high quality A clients. And so he's got an absolutely amazing business because he went super laser-like into a niche. And at the end of the day, the average big firm advisor generalist who may do a fine job. I'm not even trying to knock anybody who's going to be an advisor at a big firm, a big firm as a generalist. But there's no way he's going to go as deep. They are going to go as deep as he is into optimizing the tax consequences of the business sale, the business metrics optimization, how to maximize the value and prepare the business for sale to execute on that transaction, connect the people with the right lawyers and the right accountants to do that execute and, and, and capture it properly. And oh, by the way, after you finish the $3.7 million sale, guess who gets the money? <laughs> fascinating, fascinating stuff. So I wanna ask you very quickly about direct indexing. Okay. Yes. And, you know, Vice, who is the one doing this in the advice space, they're not the only one. Recently, they've so far raised over $125 million um, from the likes of um, Sequoia and Rebate yep. Capital. Um, and, you know, I think at eval the latest valuation was over a billion. And, you know, I was looking at this and I went and looked at the ADV. And I found that they had, I don't know, 200 million. 
and yep. and I'm thinking they, which, they have two hundred. Yeah, which which <laughs> it, which it, their fees. So I think their fees are are uh, like twenty five basis points or thirty right. basis points or something like that. So yeah, you uh, a lot of heads turn that they. Uh, just by their public numbers, probably less than a million dollars of gross revenue. Yeah. And a billion dollar valuation. Uh, and you can tell how envious I got, because I'm thinking, I've got a bit of folio. We started this thing less than 18 months ago. We are more than half a billion. But I can tell you this, no one is valuing, <laughs> valuing us at- You didn't at, get a thousand X <laughs> revenue valuation? Come on. A billion. So, so talk, talk to me about what's going on here. Is is direct indexing the next thing for, and they're doing it in the advice channel as well. So this yeah. isn't DTC. Yeah. So, uh, so, so a few things here. There's sort of direct indexing in general, and and kind of the dynamics of how does a company like Vice get a a, a billion dollar valuation with a million dollars to revenue. So, so let me start with the the, the first part first. Um, I really do think direct indexing is the future. We we actually first wrote an article about this in 2014, which everybody laughed at at the time, and now is getting really heavily cited in retrospect. Uh, now that the now that the direct indexing world is catching up, I, I do fundamentally think direct indexing is the future. Um, and I got no stake in it. I'm not, I'm not like an investor in it or anything. I'm not talking my book. Just like literally, I think direct indexing is the future. Uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar, just the core direct indexing is instead of buying an index fund with the, you know, the, the 100 stocks or the 500 stocks, you use a piece of technology that buys all 500 of the stocks in the exact allocations of the index, but without the, without the wrapper. So without you don't need the ETF or the mutual fund. Historically, we couldn't do that usually for two, two primary reasons. One, um, it just wasn't feasible for the average investor or even the average advisor to manage that many stocks and keep them like perfectly on target to whatever the, the, the index they're supposed to replicate. And second, the average investor would get obliterated by the transaction costs. Even a very, very small transaction cost would, would crush that. Well, now we live in a world where the technology, that's an easy technology thing. We just like, I, I can hit a button to say, check all stock weights, determine ideal weight, calculate difference, execute trade. Like, that's super simple technology. I, I don't want to undermine, there's some complexities to it, but like not a hard technology build. And, and commission trades have ground down to zero. And so the trading friction has gone away, the technology has come up, and lo and behold, here we sit in a world where all of a sudden this is, this is feasible. Now the secondary question is just like, who wants it and why do you buy it? Which has gotten a little bit more complex. The first you know, the, the first application of this in technology was actually Wealthfront, one of the robo-advisors here in the U.S. who tried to push this out directly to consumers, and, and it largely flopped. I mean, they got some adoption, but it, it did not take the world by storm, nor did it massively enhance their own valuation a la Vice. I think the problem is because it, it is still a pretty complex thing. It is a little overwhelming when you get the statement with the 500 stocks and the, the, you know, tax return, the tax reporting at the end of the year with the zillion sales. Technology can solve some of that, but it is a more complex sale. And I think in general, it was not something that was well adopted by consumers because they just didn't get the opportunity and what's there in the complexity. It's different for advisors. We are an intermediated channel in the first place. We like to have value ads that we can sell. I get all sorts of value ads in a direct indexing world, whether that's there's, at least in the US, there's some tax benefits because when I own the 500 stocks, I can do tax lost transactions to capture the losses on the individual stocks, right? If I own the index, the index is up 10%, there's nothing to lose. If this index has 500 stocks and the truth is 172 of the 500 are down and the other 300 are up and that's how we got to 10% up for the index, I can harvest the losses on the 172 that are down. So there's an incremental tax alpha that comes onto the table just by disaggregating the fund. On top of that, I get to start customizing a little bit more. If I'm an advisor that has a particular view about how to invest, I like I like to you know I like DFA style. I like to overweight value and and small cap, and I like a little profitability. But I don't like the ways that DFA weights it. I want to do it a little bit differently. Cool. Plug your factors in your model. Hit the button, and let you can you can recreate factor investing and in whatever factor allocations you want down to the granular stock level. You don't have to use ETFs as a building block. You can do it from the raw stocks. If you have passion around 
SRI, ESG investing. You say, I want to own, I want to own the major index <clears throat> minus all the gun stocks and all the tobacco stocks, one click of a button. Boom, like customized index. Oh, and I want to overweight renewable energy. Click, done. So we can start creating much more targeted portfolios towards ESG. And I think you're going to see an entire growth stint of direct indexing that comes out of ESG. And there's just a level of personalization. Right at the end of the day, as advisors, we tend to do well when we can personalize more. That's how we differentiate. I'll make this thing that's special and different for you. So whether that's, hey, you're already an executive at this major company, so I can literally build the entire portfolio around your existing company stock at the stock level. I can do more targeted tax strategies for you at the stock level. Uh, I can further customize. Maybe I'm not even just building around your stock. I can create an entire portfolio that builds around your industry. Any company any company that your company already has exposure to because of what you do in your corporate executive world, I can make a perfect completion portfolio around that at the granular stock level, perfectly customized for you and charge you a premium for that wonderful customization work so I don't get stuck in a fee compression battle. So there's just so much that we can do from the, from the tax alpha to the, the personally expressed portfolios, uh, individual client customization, ESG, our own version of investment philosophy boiled in, just direct indexing gives a new building block and a new framework for it. I think that's fundamentally why ETFs were so disruptive to mutual funds. It was a new building block that we could construct portfolios from. And direct indexing gives us that toolbox. And so I am particularly upbeat about how direct indexing is going to gain traction in the advisor channel in particular, and not necessarily direct to consumer. It's a little too complex for direct to consumer. Maybe 10 or 15 years from now, someone will make a, a nice version, you know, robo direct indexing that will get some direct-to-consumer traction. But I think this is particularly conducive for the advisor channel. And the reason why you're seeing crazy numbers, like you know, Vice's huge raise, so there, there's a particular approach to, to venture capital in the US that's been going for uh, almost 10 years now, which is this recognition that when you get into new realms, particularly in technology, uh, and, and sort of technology adjacent, and I think direct indexing is at least technology adjacent. It's an asset management business, but it's entirely fueled by technology. Those markets tend to be winner-takes-all markets. The number one company gets 70 to 90% of the business. The number two company gets most of what's left, and everybody else gets the last 2%. And you can see that even here in the U.S. around robo-advisors. No one understood why robo-advisors were getting hundreds of millions of dollar valuations when they had almost no revenue 10 years ago. And you can see exactly how it played out. Betterment has 30 plus billion dollars. Wealthfront, I think, has something like 20 billion. And every single other robo-advisor is gone. The number one was the big one. The number two did okay. And the other like 200 that got created are all gone. And so if you're entering that space as a venture capital firm, the process is pretty simple. You give them enough money to be number one, or you may as well not bother. Yeah. And that's, I think, why you're seeing Vice do what it is. At a core, what it's really happening is, is a, a, you know, a very storied, celebrated VC firm like Sequoia is saying, we believe this is a future. This will be some material part of the future landscape. And so if this will be a thing, if 10 years from now, a trillion dollars is going to be in direct indexing by some way, shape, or form, you get almost all the return if you stake the number one player, and you get almost all the return if you stake anybody except the number one. And in a world where nobody really knows who the number one's going to be, and it's exactly like what the offering's got to be and what features have to be there and how you're going to do it, the way you do it, you throw an ungodly amount of money at a company so that whatever it is, they're going to figure it out. They got over $100 million. So yes. what they, they can build seven ideas at once, market them 82 different ways, and if anything is going to work, they will have the resources to do it if they're able to execute. And, and just that's the hope. That's the idea. That's why a firm gets staked like that. At the end of the day, their valuation had nothing to do with their current business and their current revenue and their current offering. No knock to any of those, but just literally, it had nothing to do with that. It's a vision of, if in the future, this is a trillion dollar AUM opportunity, which relative to the US space is still small. Our market is many, many multiples of that, but you know, a lot of money at stake in a after the first trillion. So if this is an opportunity where there could be a trillion dollars in direct indexing in 10 years, and you want to be the number one player in that space, if you do the present value of being the majority uh, player in a trillion dollar market opportunity, that valuation is still going to look like a great, great deal. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Sequoia has got like 
27 other bets doing the same thing. And they only need one of them to work. So right at, at the Sequoia level, they're diversified. This is just one, one bet amongst many. But, that, but that's where it comes from. It's the idea that even a firm like Sequoia, and especially a firm like Sequoia, that's made a lot of big calls about future companies and future disruption, says we, we, we agree with the thesis that the future has direct indexing in a really material way. So we're going to give our best shot at making sure we stake the number one player by giving enough money to make them the number one player. We'll, we'll see how that plays out and whether advice does it, but, but that's where it comes from. Just, just incredible, incredible stuff, Michael. I am so grateful for your time. Every time, you know, we get together, we have a conversation, you know, I'm, I'm just soaking it all up because you are indeed my friend, a working financial planning encyclopedia. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you. Um, Hopefully we'll get to do this again very, very soon. But um, no, thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Abraham. Appreciate the opportunity to join you. Congratulations on, on all the growth that's happening there with, with Timeline and um, Metafolio. And, and congratulations on getting the podcast going. I'm, I'm glad I had an opportunity to be a part of it. Thank you. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.